Feminist Current. I'm Megan Murphy. Despite feminists' best efforts, many people today still believe that inequality between the sexes is natural, not cultural. They will often point to the behavior, clothing, or play of girls and boys to prove this. Or they will point to hormones like testosterone as evidence that men are inherently violent, sexually aggressive, or adventurous. Cordelia Fine's work throws a wrench into all of that. In her new book, Testosterone Rex, Fine paints a far more complex picture of brains and the impacts of hormones on human beings. Fine is a psychologist and is also the author of Delusions of Gender, How Our Minds, Society, and Neurosexism Create Difference. I spoke with her over the phone last week. First, Let's start with the basics. You know, while the question of what is a male and what is a female probably seems pretty simple and obvious to most people, um, you know, they would see it or they would they would say it was rooted in, you know, whether somebody has a penis or a vagina. You know, what actually defines whether one is male or female? Well, yeah, as you, as you intimate, that's slightly more of a complicated question than one might think. Um, and I suppose it really kind of depends on how you're deciding to define male or female. I mean, I think from the perspective of biological research, psychological research, people are divided into sex categories. And what the expectation is, I suppose, or the assumption is that uh, people in the female category um, have genes, gonads and genitals that take the female form. Uh, so that's in terms of um, XX chromosome and female genitals and ovaries and so on. So a female reproductive system and vice versa for the male uh, male sex category. And I should add to that that there are people who do not sort of n- n- neatly fall into unambiguously into one of those two categories. So the the various inter- intersex uh, conditions. But uh, I think one difficulty complication that there is is that uh, sex itself so the genetic and hormonal components of sex don't have those same qualities as the sex categories themselves so for approximately 99% of the population sex categories are they're stable they're they take sort of non-overlapping forms and they all kind of align on, on sort of the female side or the male side, whereas the genetic and hormonal components of sex actually don't share those qualities. And so, for example, the hormones that we think of as the sex hormones like testosterone and progesterone and um, estrogen, uh, there's overlap and they are dynamic in the in the levels that they take and also genetic sex is is a lot more complex than simply this binary of xx and xy so i suppose from the perspective of what what i'm interested in is uh this point made by the neuroscientist Stefano joel which is that this sort of complex biological sex the genetic and hormonal components of sex in most cases though not all cases create female and male relatively just have have a kind of very diverging, powerful diverging effect on the reproductive system, uh, but they 
don't necessarily have the same effect on the nervous system. Hmm. Okay, so, you know, biological differences between males and females have long been used to defend sexist ideas. So, you know, the idea that boys, for example, are naturally inclined towards things like roughhousing, playing with trucks, playing war games, and, you know, as you discuss, kind of more risk-taking behaviors, whereas girls are said to be more docile or nurturing and like to play with dolls. You know, that's a pretty popular assumption these days still. I wonder... Are kids born with inherent traits at all, and are those traits based on sex? Yeah, these are. I think what you the questions you asked there really touch on uh, the both my previous book, Delusions of Gender, and then the, the the most recent one, Testosterone Rex. So one is concerned with this idea that, uh, in particular, prenatal testosterone, which is on average um, greater in unborn baby boys and unborn baby girls um, predisposes, creates different predispositions towards um, interests in, and that these are reflected in our in the toy preferences that children see when they're you know toddlers or preschoolers and so on and then and then those toy preferences in turn reflect the fact that in society at large we see this sort of quite striking segregation of the kinds of roles and occupations that men and women take. So that's seen as all having kind of been seeded prenatally through, in particular, testosterone. And so Delusions of Gender is really focusing on this idea that males are, are um, sort of predisposed to be interested in the workings of the world, whereas females are predisposed to be uh, interested in relationships and understanding and being empath empathetic. Uh, the current book is more focused on the idea of uh, expanding that out, that because of, again, and this is all part of the reasons for supposedly males being better suited to understanding the world and females to be more empathic, that it's all part of evolutionary design. So um, because of uh, differences in the capacity of males and females to um uh, have a very high reproductive rate, this being larger in males than in females, it was beneficial for men to have evolved a tendency to be more risk-taking, to be more status-seeking, to be more competitive, whereas for females uh, it was more advantageous to uh, to be less of a risk-taker and and to be sort of nurturant towards a sort of relatively few precious offspring that she could produce. So, yeah, so these are very pervasive ideas that we have about differences between the sexes, the reason that we have them, and their kind of biological origins. Um, I think both in the scientific literature and, and certainly also in the popular discourse. Mm -hmm. And, you know, attached to that, there's this idea, um, you talked about, you know, evolutionary um, theories around um, reproduction, particular, particularly, there's this idea that it's men's biological imperative to spread their seed um, as far and as wide as they possibly can, and that this means that men are naturally promiscuous, whereas, you know, it's in women's best interest, supposedly, to hold out for the best male to reproduce with in order to produce the best possible offspring. Um, you know, that that's a pretty long-standing and widely accepted theory, like a universal principle, as you call it in the book. And this is a theory that defends harems, polygamy, cheating, Hugh Hefner's, you know, ever-rotating roster of Playboy bunnies, etc., etc. Um, and it defends the idea that female promiscuity is somehow unnatural. Is there any truth to this theory? 
Well, one thing I think it's probably worth clarifying is that I, I do think that it's not quite right to say that, that having that kind of scientific view defends the world being a particular way that it is. I mean, I think it certainly is the case that, you know, just because you think it's natural for uh, men to behave in particular kinds of ways and for women to behave in uh, other kinds of ways, that doesn't mean that ethically or morally that you uh, condone those kinds of behaviours. So I, I do think that's a, a sort of um, unfair charge that can be levelled at people who put forward those particular scientific points of view. Uh, I think what those points of view do do commit themselves to is the idea that efforts to try and change, you know, particularly uh, sort of harmful masculine behaviours, for instance, are in a sense very difficult because they are going against male nature. And I think there are also interesting questions around just the psychology of how we perceive moral responsibility. So uh, in other realms, when we feel that things are deeply biologically rooted, then that can actually have interesting subtle effects on our assessments of, of moral responsibility. So that's why, for me, it's, you know, it's pretty important to, to take a close look at the science uh, and see what kinds of assumptions we're making and whether they're, they're actually borne out by the data. So, um, I mean, one thing that, that I, I look at quite closely in Testosterone Rex is, first of all, when people hear criticisms of, of these kinds of accounts, they can often assume that you know, people are trying to plead a special case for humans to be kind of uh, above and beyond the kinds of evolutionary dynamics that apply to all other species. So one thing that I try to show in the book is that uh, although this kind of dynamic of, you know, a greater reproductive range for males does provide a, a good explanation in some species, there are actually many other factors involved. And there's actually a quite remarkable degree of diversity within the animal kingdom uh, and, you know, growing interest in the benefits of promiscuity to females, if you want to, to, to sort of pardon, pardon I apologise for using that very value-laden mm -hmm. term, um, and also benefits to competition for females. So moving away from this idea that it's only beneficial for males to you know, gain that status, material and social resources. Uh, but the other thing that's um, really often overlooked, I think, when thinking about humans in, in this regard is that um, in many species, reproduction is a, a very efficient process. So it's tightly controlled by hormones. And what that means is that everyone's kind of fertile and ready to go and reproduce at the same time. And that means that that reproductive process is sort of timed efficiently and is, is very productive. And as you move through the animal species, um, so including primates, there's much less tight hormonal control. And so that means that the process of, you know, sexual activity becomes less efficient and it's particularly inefficient in our own case. So we have a, a huge amount of non-reproductive sex. And that really has um, a couple of implications. So one implication is that it really reduces the kind of reproductive return that a male is likely to get on, you know, casual sex with many different partners because the probability of uh, any one sexual encounter resulting in a live pregnancy is is very low. So it's an awful lot of work to kind of out-reproduce out someone who is taking a more monogamous approach to life. And I think the second point is that it, it points to the fact that for us, you know, sexual activity is not simply about... Uh, even from a sort of evolutionary purpose, is not simply about bringing together our reproductive potentials. So the sort of focus on, well, what, you know, his his resources 
and her her fertility kind of overlooks the fact that for us sexual activity and sexual attraction is much much broader than that even even from a sort of evolutionary sense and you know, we often use or we often reference hormones in order to differentiate between men and women. So, you know, there's that stereotype that says women are hormonal in quotations and therefore, you know, emotional or moody, you know, especially especially at certain points during the menstrual cycle as men like Donald Trump like to <laughs> bring up as a means to condescend to and mock and dismiss women. But you know, also people will often talk about testosterone as the thing that drives what we call masculinity. So, uh, first, what is testosterone, and, and does it impact people's behaviors or personalities? Yeah, so testosterone is a steroid hormone, and uh, it's produced by both women and men and girls and boys, so um, um, in sort of from puberty at much higher levels on average in males than in females. So one thing that's, I think, often overlooked in thinking about the effect of testosterone on behaviour is that testosterone has, has physical effects too. And those physical effects, you know, change that individual's, um, I suppose, capacities in the world, uh, can change how other individuals around them respond to them. And that in turn can, you know, it creates the sort of social milieu in which uh, a particular individual is acting. And just, just to give you, that sounds very sort of waffly, <laughs> but just to give you a very concrete example of that, is this really fascinating study that was done, it was sort of years ahead of its time, I think, conceptually. It was done by a psychobiologist called Celia Moore. And what she showed was that in, um, in newborn rats, a sort of outcome of the biological differences between the males and females was that the, the male pups, male baby rats, had more testosterone in their urine than the females did. And the, the mothers find that appealing, and so they actually lick the, that region of the, the, the males uh, with more uh, vigor and frequency than they do the females. And what Celia Moore found through sort of very meticulous research is that that maternal response to uh, that kind of, I suppose you could call it a sex difference because it's to do with the testosterone levels, was actually played an important part in developing sex differences in the brain, in part of the brain relating to uh, masculine sexual behavior. And so I think this study is uh, really important for, for two reasons. So one reason is that we, we tend to think that um, something that's really important for reproductive success must be passed on through inherited biological sex. And this is an example of a study that shows that actually what's going on here is that that sort of natural... that those evolutionary processes are actually recruiting something else that is stably inherited by the rat. So the rat has a genetic inher inheritance, which includes its sex chromosomes, but it also will inherit a mother who will uh, take care for it, for it in particular ways. And so although we think that something is fundamental to reproductive success as masculine sexual behaviour, you know, must be in the portfolio of uh, the sex chromosomes because it's so important. This was a, an early example. I think the first example is showing how um, these kind of other things that an animal can sort of reliably inherit generation after generation can be part of 
uh, a critical part of the development of adaptive traits. And I guess that brings us to the second point, which is that when we think about one of the things that testosterone does, it creates, it does influence the brain and change the brain, but it also influences um, physically what we look like uh, or how we appear or how we smell or how big we are and so on and so forth. Uh, so in this case, it was to do with the odour relating to the high levels of testosterone in the blood. But of course, in ourselves, testosterone has a, you know, creates a male phenotype or a female phenotype. And then we have this very intensive process of gender socialization that can you know direct the course of development and so we tend to think of socialization as something that's sort of a little bit sort of specifically human and also kind of on top of the real developmental work that's done by biological sex and I think what this uh, Celia Moore's example with the rats shows us and you know there are other other examples is that even in non-human animals these processes of developing or evolving adaptive traits can, can recruit non-biological inheritance to help get that developmental work done. And in our own species, as a species that has a kind of more dazzling diversity of ways of, of, um, ways of being and ecologies that we survive in and so on and so forth, you've got to have something that is a pretty flexible design rather than wiring something in in a very kind of hardwired way directly from genes to brain via the hormones. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, this is something you've done a lot of work on. Is there such a thing as having a male or a female brain? You know, are there differences between male and female brains in humans? Yeah, so I think this is, this is an area where thinking has changed quite a lot recently. So it's, it's really changed from a model in which the sex chromosomes acting via sex hormones create kind of discrete male circuit and a discrete female circuit relating specifically to behaviours relating to reproduction and mating, um, to rather one in which these genetic and hormonal components of sex are acting and interacting with other factors, so epigenetic, environmental factors, in kind of dynamic and complex ways and in different ways throughout different regions of the brain. And one sort of outcome of this is that although there are sex differences in the brain on average, I think the really important insight, again, this is from the work of Daphne Joel, is that these differences, because of the processes by which sex influences the brain, these differences don't add up and up and up in a kind of consistent way in the way that the differences in the reproductive system typically do to create something that we can call male brains and female brains or even really to create what we could think of as a continuum uh, of brains that go from sort of the most male to the most female. So what Daphne Joel and colleagues predicted on the basis of this animal research that shows these complex interactions between um, sex and other factors like environmental factors is that what we'll see is uh, mosaics of characteristics, some of which will be more common in males and in females, some of which will be more common in females compared to males, and some of which will be uh, different in both. And she found evidence for this idea recently based on structural images of more than 1,400 male brains that sort of showed these mosaic features and what she showed is that there wasn't really any way any biologically meaningful way of categorizing these kinds of 
male and female brains into sort of um, male brains and female brains and the number of people who had sort of consistently male typical characteristics or consistently female typical characteristics were, were the minority. Most people had a kind of mix of male versus uh, male or male typical or female typical and sort of common in both kinds of characteristics. Um, sorry, I know you're sort of stumbling all of those words here, and I think it sort of goes to show how much it's it's just so much more complicated than just saying, yeah, there are male brains and, and female brains. It's a, it's a lot more complicated than that. And I wonder, like, there's the, the factor of socialization. Like, brains are complicated, and brains obviously change based on people's upbringing and surroundings and lives and things like that. So does gendered socialization impact brains? Like, does the way that girls are raised versus the way that boys are raised <coughs> impact their brains at all? Yeah, so one thing I should say about the study that Daphne Joel and her colleagues did is that, you know, they're looking at adult brains and they can't say anything about the origins of, the, of these brains. So, you know, you're looking at average sex differences in the brain, but every brain is the product of both their sort of biological inheritance the kind of environment that they've, uh, the experiences they've had and the interaction between the two. And one interesting aspect, actually, uh, from her findings was that she was she was drawing on different data sets and she was looking for, she was focusing on the 10 largest sex differences in the brain. And what she found is that those sort of top 10 were actually different in different data sets. And, you know, the obvious explanation of why that would be was because of either differences uh, in the kinds of experiences that people from those populations had had and or um, genetic differences. So uh, that in itself doesn't tell us anything about the origins of those sex differences in the brain. It also actually doesn't tell us what implications those sex differences in the brain actually have for behaviour. So one thing that's been incredibly difficult to do even in animal research is to link sex differences in the brain to sex differences in behaviour. And one reason for that may be is that although we tend to assume that if we see a sex difference in the brain, that must be serving to create difference in how males and females behave. Uh, another important principle is that sometimes sex differences can be um, cancelling each other out. One difference can compensate for another difference. So females' small average brain size may be compensated through average differences in connectivity, for example, something which is often overlooked in these kinds of studies. Um, yeah, but to, to get back to your question on the effects of socialisation, I mean, certainly there's a lot of interest in experience-dependent plasticity, one thing that's interested me is that we actually have relatively little research looking at this in relation to gendered activity. So despite the fact that we have kind of general explosion of popular and scientific interest in brain plasticity, there's been relatively little interest in looking at how gendered experiences specifically might influence brain development, brain function, and so on and so forth. Uh, and one of the things that um, my colleagues and I have suggested in thinking about how to do human neuroimaging research looking at um, comparisons between males and females is to really be aware of this shortcoming that when you measure, a when you just take a snapshot of differences between female and male brains, one issue is that Although, of course, neuroscientists understand that in the brain doesn't mean innate, if you don't collect any data, 
that says, okay, well, do we see the same difference in this population? Do we see the same difference if we put people in this context? And do we see the same difference after, you know, a month of training? You can't actually collect any data that will challenge the idea of fixed, universal, timeless sex differences in the brain. So what we suggested is that researchers see this as just being the starting point of research and then to, to actually go on and investigate that, that very question that you're asking, uh, to what extent are these experiential experiences influencing brain development and brain function. I think we've made more progress with that in relation to thinking about hormones, uh, there's particularly looking at testosterone. So the work of um, Sari Van Anders, for example, has been looking at how, you know, what are, can be construed as gendered contexts actually influence hormonal state and via that behaviour. How do you think the prevalence of these kinds of ideas, you know, that boys and girls are fundamentally different, that they play with different toys, that they behave in different ways, you know, based on sex, you know, that they're drawn to certain types of clothing and activities, um, again, based on their biological sex. How do you think this impacts children and, you know, people in general? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, one thing I'd just like to say about the toy preferences is that it's it's really interesting when you look at lab studies of kids' preferences. So these are sort of kids of age two to three. Um, so they're already at the age where that sort of gender identity is starting to kick in, which can influence the kinds of toys that children are interested in playing with. But e- even at that age, there's this huge amount of overlap in what boys and girls are interested in playing with. So it's frustrating when you see your reactions to campaigns against gender toy marketing that argue, um, look, you know, the pink aisles and the blue aisles are just reflecting boys and girls' natural interests. Because when you actually look at the range of toys that children will play with in a lab setting, there's a lot of overlap. And my own view in terms of the, the small differences that you do see, uh, I sort of looked at the evidence the arguments that that's due to prenatal testosterone exposure. I sort of looked at in excruciating detail and delusions of gender, and I personally think it's, uh, from a scientific point of view, uh, it's it's really an open question. But in terms of the impact, uh, so some, some concerns are around the developmental opportunities that that has for children, um, and I think that's a concern that... I don't know how much hard data there is for that, but it's certainly something that would one, you know, children learn through play. So the kinds of toys that they're playing with are going to influence their kind of developmental opportunities. But I think the other thing is that these toys uh, reinforce gender stereotypes of boys as bad but bold and girls as wonderful but weak. And we know that these gender stereotypes are the basis of both conscious and unconscious forms of discrimination in in the workplace and that workplaces are, you know, working quite hard to try and overcome the effects of. So there does seem to be a kind of contradiction here between sort of trying to break down the conscious or unconscious barriers to women in the workplace and yet at the same time reinforcing those very gender stereotypes in a more kind of rigorous way than I think we have in any time of history in in children's world. So I think there will be this sort of generally this reinforcement of gender stereotypes. Um, One can see as not necessarily being a good thing. But I I think the 
The sort of larger point is that when we tell ourselves, look, these differences in what boys and girls want to play with is natural and it's fixed and it's kind of going against nature to try and challenge them simply, you know, and challenging here is simply offering things in a gender neutral way rather than sort of forcing particular toys on on girls and boys. It, it does have that kind of effect of making us feel that the the segregation that we see in society as a whole is also natural, in a sense inevitable, very hard to go against because because you're going against nature. And in terms of the research that psychologists have done, they have shown that when people think in these kind of you know, men are from Mars, women are from Venus, boys will be boys kinds of ways. It does have effects on, for example, their support for the status quo, how likely they think things are, are to, to change, not very, um, their support for progressive gender policies. It can influence people's conceptions of themselves, for instance. It, it, it influences the sort of um, the rightness of traditional gender roles in society, how... how sort of accepting one is of those and you know that makes perfect sense if you think that boys will be boys that men and women are fundamentally different then the idea of having a, a more equal society than we have now will seem like railing against nature so to me that's why it's uh, so important to take a really close look at the science the scientific models the scientific assumptions uh, the data around those claims that what we're, what we're seeing here is really this sort of timeless effects of biological sex on the brain and on behavior. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Thank you so much for your time and your work. I really appreciate all of it. Oh, thank you. Thanks for the interest. You just heard an interview with Cordelia Fine. Her new book, Testosterone Rex, Unmaking the Myths of Our Gendered Minds, is published by ICON. That is all the time we have for today. I'm Megan Murphy. Thanks for tuning in to Feminist Current. You can find us online at feministcurrent.com, tweet at us at feministcurrent, or send us an email at info at feministcurrent.com. We are hosted by Libsyn, and you can subscribe to the Feminist Current podcast anywhere you like to listen iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, TuneIn, and beyond. You can even give us five stars and a review on iTunes. Show the world radical feminism is worth listening to. Feminist Current is a syndicated show produced and edited by myself, Megan Murphy, out of Vancouver, BC. If your station would like to air Feminist Current, you can find episodes at audioport.org. And finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, consider making a donation to support our work. Just visit feministcurrent.com and click the donate button.